You guys know what that sounds about. It's time for Power to the People here on Radio Phoenix. It's Glenn Miller, Chris Felton for a dynamic hour going to serious issues of the day and the connections of of broader culture to politics. So we have two uh, ladies in our studio today. We're gradually getting back to normal and doing in-studio interviews again. And it is uh, Reverend or Pastor Susan Valaket and um, Dr. Carrie Jackson. Susan is currently, I believe, the lead pastor at um, our neighbor. There are neighbors. We're right around the corner is the the... What, the, the UCC Church, United Church of Christ, First Church? Yes, that's oh, correct. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Didn't want to mess that up. And so I'm excited to, to have these two guests. Uh, Carrie is a pastor with the church, not presently one of the pastors for that particular church around the corner from here uh, in downtown Phoenix. But uh, we want to learn, our, and want well, you guys, our listeners, to learn more about the United Church of Christ. Um, you guys may remember the campaign back in uh, 2008, uh, President Obama's campaign and the controversy over his church and Reverend Wright there. He was a member of that United Church of Christ church there in, in Chicago. And uh, there was some controversy about some statements that uh, the Reverend had made and that were recorded in some of his uh, sermons, and, and they resigned from the church. But anyhow, I'm going to give you a, a brief introduction. First, um, uh, Reverend Susan Valaquette, she was born in Ohio, went to Wright State University for a BA and continued her education at United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities to obtain her Master's of Divinity. She was ordained in 1995 at the age of 25 and landed her first pastoral position prior to graduating from the seminary. She has been a pastor for 26 years. For 18 of those years, she served as a as chaplain of a female boarding school in a township just outside of Durban, South Africa. That that could be an interesting line of thread of discussion. Uh, currently, she is the pastor of First Church, United Church of Christ in downtown Phoenix, Arizona, where she has served for three years. And then briefly here about uh, Carrie, J- Dr. Carrie Jackson. Um, she um, is a ordained minister in the United Church of Christ, currently serving as director of spiritual care and activism for the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. As a social healer, she has developed Taking Back My Life uh, is an organization, an empowerment program for survivors of sexual assault. Dr. Uh, Carey holds a PhD in Christian social ethics, and she is the author of five books. I'd like to hear a little bit more about her, some of her books here in just a bit. And um, so we're, we're going to get right into it. I'm going to let them kind of start out together and give our listeners who may not know anything about the United Church of Christ a little bit about, you know, where where does it stand within the history of, of Christianity and maybe theologically, um, you know, is it more modernistic Christianity or relative to more fundamentalist Christianity and, and what you guys are doing in the community? Thanks so much. We're so glad to be here today and with you. The United Church of Christ, we talk about it being united and uniting because they come together in 1957 with four different denominations. So the Congregational Churches, the Christian Churches, the Evangelical um, Synod of North American Reformed Church. So all of those churches merged first, and then they merged again to form the United Church of Christ in 1957. 
So we have a long reformed history and tradition and background. But a lot of what we are as the United Church of Christ, especially our polity and the way we run, comes from the Congregationalist roots of the church. So that would be the, the Puritans that landed in New England um, and were really there for religious freedom and for autonomy. And so much of what we do is based upon that kind of polity and governance in the background in the UCC. As I understand, the Congregational Church was kind of a reorganization or a reform of that Puritan movement that started in uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony, you know, 1620, Plymouth Rock and all that, and that it changed somewhat its theology a little bit, maybe become a little more modern, a little less fundamentalist. Is that correct? Well, that depends on one's perspective. Okay. Um, as, as Susan said, we focus on the united and the uniting. And, and one of the key aspects of the, the UCC is that uh, we invite people never to place a period where God has placed a comma, meaning God is still speaking. And so as a denomination, we continue to evolve uh, theologically, politically, socially, and relationally. And, and so that's something that I think is, is very important. Uh, who is God inviting us to be, and how is God inviting us to show up as church in a particular era. So when you talk about uh, more modernistic, and that's an interesting word for me mm -hmm. um, theologically, um, and perhaps you mean by modernistic uh, how relevant, how socially relevant, or you tell me what you mean by the word modernistic. Thank you for asking, <laughs> so that you're, we're clarified here on what I mean by these terms. We, during our discussion with, um, we had in a recent show, I mentioned to you with Rabbi Maurice Harris, uh, of the um, Reconstruction Judaism movement. Uh, they're based out of Philadelphia. We, we talked about the difference between modern, and you could say the same thing about Judaism or Islam or Christianity, all three wings of uh, Abramism coming out of the Old Testament. There, there's rough distinctions, I think, between fundamentalism, where they take the, let's say for Christians, they take the whole of every word of both books, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and they look at it literally. That's one, you know, and there's different d degrees, of course, of these of these movements. And there's modern. What I think of modernistic Judaism, Islam, or Christianity is wings uh, as a wing of those faiths where they might make a distinction about and and pick and choose about what they want to take as the revealed word of God out of those two books. Both they all consider the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, to be the revealed word of God. But they might say, well, this part. And I could read part of Leviticus that I find deeply offensive, and I think you guys probably do, uh, where God commands that anybody involved in homosexual activity be put to death. Um, and, and say, well, no, this I don't think is a revealed word of God, and that they might look at some parts of the two works, the two, bi two Bibles, and not take it literally, but take it metaphorically in order to draw value from it, but not look at it as literal history or literally the word of God. I know Pastor Susan has a lot to say on this, um, but I want to jump in, if, if I may. I don't think there is such a thing as scriptural literalism. People say that that's what it is, but if, if, if it is really taken literally, what the scriptures really focus a lot on is compassion. 
I do not see people lifting that up as part of how they understand uh, their Christianity. And and you, you talked about um, the Le- Levitical Code. There are things in there that talk about uh, not eating uh, shellfish and and not to mix uh, wool and and uh, was Co- it? Co- wool and cotton. So there is really no such thing in in my map as biblical or scriptural literalism. There is a picking and choosing. But one of my favorite texts in scripture is the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And so as the United Church of Christ, part of what drew me to this denomination 22 years ago, because I grew up Pentecostal, Mm -hmm. what drew me to the United Church of Christ is that deep understanding about how spirit gives life. And so those traditions that you cited as uh, biblically literal, there is not an energy and an excitement in my spirit within those traditions because there is, there tends to be uh, within fundamentalism a tendency toward the letter in a very legalistic way. And, and Jesus talked about coming to, in, in him was the fulfillment of the law, inviting people to something much grander than that. Let me just mention one thing, Chris, and I'll let you go on, okay? I just want to mention, because it's related exactly to what you just said, uh, Gary, and this is from uh, a description of Leviticus from my Bible. It says, the best known words from the book found in 1918 within Leviticus are those which Jesus called the second great commandment, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Go ahead. So I I concur with some of what you just got through saying. A lot of what we don't see now is compassion, and Jesus did stress that. In terms of the literal interpretations, I, I disagree with that. In the Word, it says you aren't to take away or to add to. So... When, when when I see people that and they do that, they pick and choose what they want to to do, then they're taking away and they're adding to. So I think it was meant to be taken literal. It it is a history book. It's a lot of the history we don't want to adhere to because we don't necessarily understand it. Case in point, there's some things in there in in, in Genesis that most actually I, I don't really see too many uh, churches teaching on. The, the the genealogy of in Genesis because it spends a lot of time on the table of nations and there's a couple of verses in there in, in Genesis 6 I think 611 or whatever they don't really touch nobody touches that there, there's well I'll, t- I'll take that back few people will touch that I do think it's it's meant to be taken literal I think that as humans there's some things that we don't want to take literal because like I said we don't understand it it doesn't fit with our current worldview paradigm and we tend to think of ancient man as primitive he didn't know too much we we think we know better so I just wanted to, I just wanted to say that well there's a couple of things one is we've got 2000 years ago um, the way in which we apply our scientific minds to scripture is not what was going on and they lived in a world of story, first oral stories passed down, um, much later written down, and things were metaphor and in story forms. Mm-hmm. And they spent a lot of time hearing stories and their meaning 
And that was the point. That was the point, and that's how they lived. And so now we begin to apply a, a very scientific mind and say, oh, we have to do this exactly as it's mm -hmm. saying in this particular line. See, that's not necessarily true. I think a lot of the things that we consider metaphor, hyperbole, and allegory, like the, the ancients, they consider it literal. Just because we don't understand, we might not understand their perspective we weren't you know we weren't there so a lot of the times we're we're just filling in the blanks uh, because we can't comprehend some of the things that they may have been saying uh, or doing for that matter uh, i think it's a little bit arrogant if not childish for us to consider that we think that we know better than the people that came before us and then in terms of how individuals utilize the scientific mind a lot of what modern science is based on is based off of some of the individuals that were there so for instance i can't say that modern man is more advanced than they were because in some of those cultures they built buildings that lasted and stood the test of time withstood earthquakes some people say the pyramids were built before the flood and there, there are pyramids across the globe that are underwater, which shows that there was a flood, a global flood at some point. Mm -hmm. So um, I can't say that they didn't utilize their scientific um, mind uh, and, and that we do it better because there, there, there are things in archaeology and, and, and geology that, that show otherwise. So, I mean... Absolutely. I completely agree with the brilliance of creativity and what was what happened. It's just the, the worldview in which we think through is not the same. Our worlds are not the same, and so we think through different lenses. In terms of the, the, the truth, I think that we come to truth in lots of ways, not just scripture. I think that our conversation, we will come to some truth as we share together. Truth comes to us through experience. experience. Truth comes to us mm -hmm. by recognizing that at least for, for myself and Carrie, that we believe that um, we're sacred and we're born with that sacredness, um, that divinity. And so truth comes to us through our own experiences um, and is re revealed to us. We gotta Go take, we got to take a quick break, no and then when we come back, we will pick up right there where we left off. We'll be right back and with more power to the people in just a little bit. Taxman got you down? The Blau Company is here to help. For 50 years, the Blau Company has focused on building meaningful, long-lasting relationships, ensuring clients understand any and all complicated tax codes. Services include accounting, tax preparation, consulting, and more for both businesses and individuals. The office is located at 1204 East Baseline Road, Suite 104 in Tempe. More information can be found at blauco.com. That's B-L-A-U-C-O dot com.
Okay, we we're back with more Power to the People with uh, Glenn Miller and Chris Felton. And when we left off, we were having a discussion about taking the Bible literal, the scientific... Uh, how, how did you have it? <laughs> how did you say it again? Well, we approach it in such a different way, 2,000-some right. right, years right, later. Right, right, right. So I wanted to unpack that a little more. You want to unpack the, the science and the, the worldview towards Scripture? Um, just what, clarify a little bit more what you meant, and then I'm going to get into And Glenn had something to say, and then I, had, um, I wanted to talk a, more about um, your church and what your beliefs are, and most importantly, you guys' logo. I think you guys' logo is a little interesting. Yeah, just from our scientific kind of minds, and for me, um, I'm also claiming being from the United States, Western, educated, the way that I look and approach something is so different than 2,000 years ago when these stories in Scripture were first told in oral tradition, passed down through generations before they were ever written down. They didn't know that they were all going to be compiled one day, 66 books into one, and we were, we were going to then look at it through our present day experience and situation and what's happening in our own context and apply it. To 2,000 years ago. I, I want to mention one thing, uh, my interjection here. Uh, Chris and I get into disagree- discussions uh, all the time about about the, the Bible, and um, one disagreement we have is about the different translations. What I have in front of me right now that I was just quoting from a moment ago is what's called the Good News Bible. Now, this includes the Deuterocanonicals Deutero- and a Apocrypha, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. This is today's English version. So, now, it, has, so it has uh, uh, the apocryphal books in there, the book of Enoch, Enoch 1, rather, mm-hmm. Jasher, um, uh, the book of Jubilees. It has that in there? I believe so. I believe so. Yeah. I'd have to look for sure. Um, but uh, it's just today's English version. Now, Chris said that he refers more to the King James Version. And as I understand it, a lot of these modern translations that are around right now are sort of based off the King James Version, uh, is my understanding. Of course, the, the, the New Testament was originally written in Greek by, uh, by uh, J- uh, Greek uh, Jews who, um, you know, were fluent in Greek. And then, of course, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And, and so do you guys have a particular translation that you prefer, maybe your church officially prefers, um, you know, in order for people to understand the Bible. I think what's so important to remember is that anything that was an oral tradition and then was written down has changed. And anything that is then written down in a language and then translated is an interpretation. So even the King James Version, if people say that's the one that's the best or this good news Bible that you have is the best, Whatever you're reading is an interpretation. Somebody had to make a language decision about what words to use. And well, we do yeah. it all the time. Yeah, so it's, which is why you have to use uh, etymology search. You have to st- look at words in Greek. Um, Greek has, what, some 5 million different word common, uh, words, uh, another 350 million word combinations. English only has 220,000. So 
<laughs> you make a good point to, to compare translations, um, to look back at the original Greek and Hebrew, which not all of us have the privilege to do. Um, we use often the New Revised Standard Version. Um, sometimes we use the message. Um, and I would say that the, the, the one of choice right now for us is the inclusive Bible. Inclusive Bible. That's In, the actual name of it. Inclusive. inclusive Bible. Yeah. One of the other things that's really, really important in this, uh, as, as Pastor Susan was saying, that whoever is doing the translation, there's a, a degree of in, interpretation that's happening in the process. So the Hebrew, for example, uh, those original texts there was no such thing as sentence punctuation. So those who were translating from the Hebrew were doing so through the lens of their own life experiences to say, oh, well, here's where uh, the, the words should break into this sentence or into this phrase, et cetera, et cetera. And where we break things greatly impacts then what the meaning of, of the, the thing is. Um, and so there's also the Aramaic and, and Greek. And one of the things that is absolutely fascinating for me is the power of translation was known so well to the church leaders, and, and I'm not talking about early church, but when we started forming hierarchical church, and when there was only the Catholic Church. They understood the importance of translation so much till when folks like uh, Jan Hus and, and John Wycliffe wanted to translate into the language of the people, you know, translate it from the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek into English and into German. They were villainized as heretics they were burned, and, and I think it was Wycliffe who died, and they were so pissed off at him. Is it okay if I use the word pissed off on the show? There they were, they were seven so, words we can't do. You know they, they were so yeah, pissed ahead. off till they dug up his body, his dead body, and burned him. Because there's something absolutely well, that speaks powerful in, in in the translation and people being able to read it for themselves. That speaks back to what we were talking about on the compassion issue, though. So just because you have a different interpretation than I do doesn't necessarily mean that you're wrong. It just might mean that I see things a little bit different than you mm -hmm. and I shouldn't, you know. At least that's how I see it. And I think this gets to one area where Chris and I sort of agree um, in the history of Christianity is what happens in 325, the Nicene Council. Mm -hmm. yes. And um, the, the, the Roman Emperor Constantine basically makes Christianity the favored religion. Well, why did he and, do that, and, though? Well, that, that's a whole other topic. But anyhow, <laughs> the, the, what, what happened, what, the point I'm making is that that uh, of course Roman he grew up pagan of course Romans had been pagans and so there's a big shift there and my understanding and you guys can tell me if you think I'm wrong in your reading of that history but of the fourth century Roman Empire 
is that Christianity in the late fourth century it becomes the official re- religion of the Roman Empire, and that there this beautiful religion of 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 people you know since its beginning now is married to the tyranny of the Roman Empire, and that goes through the Middle Ages and whatever you know if you weren't a uh, a Pauline Christian at that point believing in the principles of the Trinity and the Nicene Council. You were punished. You you were ostracized. You may be killed. Yeah, but that's nothing new for the Roman Empire, though. The Romans uh, routinely or put people to death, not only via crucifixion, but uh, in the Colosseums. I mean, it's estimated that some over some three thousand Christians were put to death in the Colosseums just in uh, what two fifty A.D. alone. Uh, many of them by the Domatio ad Bastia, which uh, is Latin for they were thrown to the animals in the Colosseum. Like we won't even talk talk about the ones that were put to death uh, just via the gladiators. So just being an enemy of the state and place people uh, and put them put them to death. So you can't really use that excuse. All right, we're gonna take a quick break and we will be right back with more Power to the People with Glenn Miller and Chris Phelps. 